Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a competitive powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and we just adjusted my squat suit for the first time. So, it's snug now. So, we're going to see how that goes today. Oh, nice. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, associate professor at the Kerrig Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Certification and the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. Still, I'm back home, hanging out. Good. Good. It makes me feel been, a little better. Uh, you've been home this year more more this year than you have in a decade, I think. Oh, by far. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I looked at the calendar, and other the past three years, if I exclude up until March of this year, um, with the exception of last fall, I was home for six weeks. The longest span I was home in those three years was two and a half weeks. Wow. <laughs> God. That's crazy. I always think about those, you know, the job offers, and they'll be like, you know, travel is 25 to 50% of your job. Mike's would be like 80 to 90%. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. You're getting, you're getting in a serious, intimate relationship with your household. It's going to be hard when it goes back to something different. Your house yeah. is going to get jealous. Yeah, it's it's, oh. it's different. I wouldn't say it's bad. It's just different. Yeah. And the nice part about, not that there's a good part about all this, but it's kind of out of your control, right? It's like, yeah, I don't know. What are you I didn't do? do anything. It wasn't me. Yeah. I didn't screw up. I'm not, quote unquote, missing anything because it's just not going on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing going on. Yeah. Um, in fact, I just heard two of the conferences that I was eyeballing for 21. Um, yeah. The one in Tokyo, yeah, and the one in Boston, both now online, online only. In fact, no, the Tokyo one was uh, delayed a full year. So, Mike, you remember the ICN, like in Spain? Yeah. Yeah, it's that big one. It's like the Olympic Games of Nutrition, kind of. It's every four yeah. years. and Every four years, yeah. Yeah, delayed an entire calendar year, basically. So I don't know what I'm going to do next year. Um, I, I did the online conference thing, and I know some people get into that, but... I was shackled to my keyboard like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. because I needed the continuing education credits for my nutrition license and everything. And I mean, don't get me wrong. It was cool to be on conference calls. I mean, some of the guys you see in the COVID news, like the head of the NIH and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in a conference call with this guy. I can see his office. Like, this is a call. You know, it was a group call. It's not like he's my bud. I always joke with Kelly like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> he saw my office and we're, we're tight. Anyway. Today's uh, episode, everybody, we've got some news that's going to lead to a topic, which is meat, just meat, uh, all things carnivorous. Um, I did want to say thank you to fall donor, Robert. You know who you are. Thanks, bro. Uh, everybody, the fall funds drive is underway, which means that in addition to our $4 monthly supporters, which are highly valued, that some people say, listen, I can just go to... Um, ironradio.org and click on the one-time donor button. It's over on the right side of the page if you don't want to lock into a $4 a month thing. But as I say in the mid-show ad, $4 a month, you know that's less than the bank will sneak out of my account in fees. In fact, my business account, the bank sneaks $12 out in fees. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are like, well, you need a better bank. I'm like, they're all crooked. You know, so... Anyway, so thank you, uh, Robert, and our usual donors we thank in the show notes, if you haven't noticed, you guys. But Okay. So, uh, I have two little bits on vitamin D. Uh, 
mostly vitamin D in old guys. So if you're not middle-aged or older, you might, you know, say, well, at least they're people. <laughs> they're not exactly like you, but they are. it is human research. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one here, low vitamin D levels are linked to a lack of gut microbiome diversity. This is from Carmen Leach at Lab Roots. I may reach out to her. Um, I reached out to some of their uh, better journalists before, and I'm constantly reading her stuff. It says researchers are learning more about the various ways our health is affected by the composition of the gut microbiome, the impact of the genes that these microbes express, and the molecules they produce. Typically, more diverse microbiomes are found in healthier people, right? So you want a variety. It says, reporting in Nature Communications, University of California, San Diego, or UCSD, researchers and collaborators recently showed that there was a connection between the composition of the gut microbiome and levels of active vitamin D in older men. Now, the key there is active vitamin D because we normally test for 25-hydroxy-D, which is a precursor. Um, anyway, it says, we were surprised to find that microbiome diversity, the variety of bacteria types in a person's gut, and of course, when they say gut, they mean your large intestines, right? Your bowels, large bowel. Well, it was closely associated with active vitamin D, but not the precursor form, says senior study author Deborah Cato, MD. Uh, hmm. It's been suggested that low levels of vitamin D might increase the risk of a variety of diseases, including cancer, heart disease, and severe COVID-19. However, a large study that included 25,000 people determined that supplements don't improve health outcomes. Now caveat there everybody because when i see a study with twenty five thousand, that typically means no intervention right that that yeah. means that's an observational <clears throat> study and they're just looking for correlations um our study suggests uh that this might be because these studies measured only the precursor form of vitamin d rather than the active hormone noted cato so in their study they took blood and stool samples from 567 healthy male volunteers now, these are old guys, but across six U.S. cities. And Phil knows all about the providing researchers with stool samples. Um, <laughs> the scientists found that there was a connection between the levels of active vitamin D and the diversity of the microbiome. They also identified 12 types of bacteria that were found more often uh, in the microbiomes of men with high active vitamin D levels. Many of these microbes generate the molecule called butyrate. And we might do a deeper dive on that in the future. We've talked about some of these short-chain fatty acids before, um, which helps maintain the health of the gut lining. And then it just goes on to say, even though samples were collected from different parts of the U.S. that get various levels of sunlight, including sunny San Diego, there was no connection between how much active vitamin D a man carried and where he lived. So they speculate that it may be people's conversion capability here. Um, it seems that it doesn't matter how much vitamin D you get through sunlight or supplements, or, uh, nor how much your body can store, Cato said. It matters how well your body is able to metabolize that into active vitamin D. So some interesting stuff there about vitamin D and your uh, gut biodiversity there. I don't know, Mike. I mean, I'm always I'm always pretty satisfied with 25-hydroxy-D. I mean, they do that because of half-life issues, of course. Right. You know? But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I mean, most of the data I've seen on 25-hydroxy, uh, which is, like you said, the precursor to vitamin D3, is was pretty solid. I haven't seen anything that says otherwise. I haven't looked for probably about a year, though, to be honest. Uh, 125-hydroxy, which is D2, that's going to be much, much shorter-lived. But, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And again, you always wonder if it's a, an epi study. You'd have to look at what they're looking at and how they did their correlations and their associations. And obviously, that's not going to imply causation, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, listeners, if you're not familiar, of course, you're, you have a cholesterol precursor in your skin. UV light will hit your skin, or of course, you can supplement. But at, when your body creates active vitamin D itself, you need your liver and your kidneys to sort of add these hydroxy group these alcohol groups and activate the vitamin d um so that's kind of where they left it though you know like oh well, maybe you're not a good converter yeah. okay well can you give me some more tips do you mean because of liver stress or kidney damage or you know like what maybe they don't know yet so 
Anyway. Yeah, that's what I always wonder with if there's something going on with the the kidneys too, because that's one of the cases you would use D2 if you've got kidney issues and your conversion from 25-hydroxy to 125-hydroxy, and that whole pathway gets kind of hosed up. Yep. Uh, I have another one here. This is a little bit uh, more geared toward Phil, perhaps. Um, association of 25-hydroxy vitamin D deficiency. See here, they're using that precursor as the standard with risk of incidence of disability in activities of daily living in adults over 50 years old. This is from the Journal of Nutrition, uh, November, and it's spanking new. Uh, vitamin D deficiency compromises muscle function. We aimed to assess whether vitamin D deficiency is associated with the incidence of disability in basic activities of daily living, or basic ADL. I sound like an occupational therapist here. I always <laughs> associate ADLs with occupational therapy. Yeah. Uh, to verify whether there are sex differences as well. Um, so a four-year follow-up study was done looking at individuals 50 and older. Uh, looks like it was, took place in England. The sample consisted of over 4,800 participants free of disability at baseline. Uh, vitamin D was assessed by serum 25-hydroxy-D. Um, and they were classified as either sufficient, greater than 50 nanomoles per liter, insufficient, 30 to 50, or deficient less than 30 nanomoles per liter. Uh, Sociodemographic, behavioral, and clinical characteristics were also investigated. And that's good, right? They're trying to correct for these things. Uh, then they reevaluated at two and four years. After a four-year follow-up, deficient serum 25-hydroxy-D, so this is the really low folks, was a risk factor for the incidence of basic activities of daily living in both, uh, disability that is, in both women and men. However, insufficient serum 25-hydroxy-D was not a risk factor for this type of disability developing, you know, basically weakness and, you know, lack of function and things like that. Uh, in fact, there's a, a few tidbits in the introduction of this paper when you pull the full paper uh, that I just thought kind of lays the mechanism for this. It says the presence of vitamin D receptors, uh, VDRs, are now well established in a range of human tissues right and that points to the fact that it's systemic it's not just the bone vitamin like i was typically taught you know in uh, grad school in nutrition um but we have if you have vitamin d receptors including muscle cells right including myocytes then that suggests that vitamin d has an action in that tissue and it says here further low serum 25 hydroxy d concentrations may result in less uptake of calcium in the muscles which then compromises the quality of muscle contraction i've never really heard that much about why vitamin d was low vitamin d that is was connected with weaker muscles you know so uh, i was going to ask phil if there was i know a lot of people supplement these days and it's really hard to identify this but whether there was any differences in noticeable strength like in winter months versus in the summer? Like are there a lot of meats in the winter versus the summer or does do strength fluctuate? I, again, I know there's a hundred different things that affect muscle strength Ugh. and it, it's not all sun exposure, but have you yeah. ever noticed, do, do strength levels dip like in December, January or or what do you think? God, I don't think I've noticed it at all. Um, I think it's very individual as far as that because some people like holiday season they get busy they can't train as much yeah some people I mean I get a lot of people like we are busier in once it gets cold because they don't have shit to do outside okay so, yeah you know they'll be at the gym more often yeah like, well, what else am I gonna do so uh, no nah, the things I notice is just more temperature related uh, us old folks seem to train better in the summer especially at my gym because it's hot oh yeah cold in the winter so it hurts more no i can't say <laughs> I, i've noticed anything that would be vitamin d based right uh, do you have phil do you have more. like what about centralized records do you individuals have their own log books like you wouldn't have a central oh, record yeah. database of all this do you i don't have a, everybody has their own log books that i follow okay. um and i just take notes and stuff but I can't say that I've seen anything that, and the weird thing is, is we also generally always train for a meet in the winter. 
So, like, we usually have a big powerlifting meet November or December that we're all training for, like the biggest one of the year. So okay. we have to be strong then. So that. So yeah, it doesn't really match uh, up. Yeah, so I can't paint it. You know, I, the only way I'd be able to tell is that okay, we need to move a big meet to this June. <laughs> you know, and, right. and and look at the differences. Were they stronger in June than they were in December? Exactly. Yeah, that's why yeah, I was asking. So. Like, if there's a. <laughs> somehow a central database i could get a grad student on it and just have them look you know is there a five percent reduction but again it's probably a, a fool's errand because there's so many psychosocial yeah. things at work here you know exactly so yeah. i don't think i'd have anything that would pan out at right. all okay so yeah. john cannell's hypothesis he wrote a book several years ago about looking at the records i think it was the olympic records from the mexico city olympics and because of that i think the altitude if i remember correctly people had to get there a couple of weeks early mm-hmm. and a lot of the events were outside so his his thoughts or hypothesis was that maybe because of that their vitamin d levels were were going up which resulted in uh, more olympic records at that time but huh. who knows yeah yeah what's the other data on vitamin d and performance that i've seen is like super mixed yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just neat to from again for me to see that mechanism, the calcium yeah. influx, you know, from the SR. Yeah, that's going to affect. I mean, a lot of the yeah. a, a lot of drugs and supplements work partly through that way, including creatine. You know, providing the energy for better, you know, calcium influx and efflux and all that kind of stuff, and like Isn't contraction. That's one of the debatable mechanisms of caffeine too. Yeah, caffeine is result. I'm not going to bore people, but there's actually something called calcium stimulated calcium release. <laughs> Um, and yes, um, also caffeine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know the whole show on itself. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Stimulants and yeah. How they make your muscles, you know, contract harder. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, here's the two bits on meat before we, uh, go to the mid show break. And then we just talk about, I mean, I, we have several things we can talk about meat. Like, um, you know, what are your choices? Um, Phil can talk about some of his favorite meats, and he probably eat, has eaten more meat than most humans. Um, <laughs> Mike can talk maybe a little bit about some of the you know zoo chemicals or nutrients in meats, I suppose. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit more about this these studies. I keep seeing lately, just to set this up, I keep seeing stuff about rosemary reducing uh, the cancer risk of blackened meat. Now, I'm not a big fan of things like blackened fish or you know stuff that's grilled to the point that it looks like a piece of charcoal um but i do understand like that maillard reaction and the browning and a lot of the, th- these lead to the flavors of roasted meat and i dig that myself <laughs> but so here's one I, I i dug around because i kept seeing this lately and i have two papers one's new and this first one um was probably the first i heard about different spices basically marinating and and rubbing meats before you you grill them or like braise them or you know roast them and whatnot. This is from Science Daily, University of uh, Arkansas, back in 2008. But it says to block the carcinogens, add a touch of rosemary when grilling meats. Rosemary, a member of the meat mint family and a popular seasoning on its own, also has benefits as a cancer prevention agent. Apply it to hamburgers, and it can break up the potentially cancer-causing compounds that can form when the meat is cooked. So J. Scott Smith, who's a KSU food science professor, he said, quote, put a little bit on the surface. Uh, Rosemary extracts shouldn't have much of an aroma to them. Most people don't want a rosemary flavored burger. So if you get the extract, you don't really know it's there. Now, before I go on, Phil, you said you don't mind spices like rosemary on your meat. No, oh, it's delicious. I mean, it's one of the ones I go to all the time. A lot of rosemary and sage and mm-hmm. and things like that. The only thing you got to watch out with rosemary is it can be kind of twiggy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's hard. So unless you cook it a lot uh, and and get some moisture in it, but uh, or have a way that you can take it out. Oh, like I see. Wrap something, you know, put it inside of something, and then take that out. If not, you're kind of like chewing on a twig. Okay, but the like- flavor's amazing. Um, Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a toothpick. Right, I get it. <laughs> In its natural form. Right, exactly. So, uh, but yeah, it was delicious. I, uh, I had no clue. I don't. I wasn't using it for the health benefits. Right. It's for the flavor. Well, so. I had read long ago that, you know, of course, 
the McCormick people, the spice company, they love this sort of stuff to hear that spices have really strong antioxidants and polyphenols and all this stuff. And they do. Um, I think it's a way better approach to flavoring your meat than a lot of processed crap, of course. But uh, this guy, um, this KSU prof here, J. Scott Smith, his research group found that HCAs, so those heterocyclic amines that are formed with, in the, basically in the blackening of meat, um, were reduced in levels ranging from 30 to 100% with the rosemary. Wow, 100%. Um, now, he did say you can cook meat below 352 degrees, um, although lower temperatures and shorter cooking times would reduce the HCA, again, this carcinogen, or these carcinogens. Um, low temp alternatives have their own problems. Low temperature can affect uh, the taste adversely, he says, noting that commercial steakhouses usually cook at temperatures above 400 degrees Fahrenheit. So... Just cooking lower temperatures not to form the HCAs, you know, your meat wouldn't taste as good. So uh, your steak, whatever. It says the better way may be to use rosemary extract so temperatures can be kept high. Rosemary's antioxidant content, there we go, makes this method possible thanks to the presence of phenolic compounds. Those compounds, uh, rosmarinic acid, carnosol, and carnosic acid block the HCA before they can form during heating. And this is in general agreement, or at least tie in with uh, his group's previous findings that show that marinating steaks with certain herbs and spices can reduce these HCAs. And this is just a good idea. Nobody wants stomach or kind of weird, I don't know, pancreatic or, I don't know, digestive cancers of some kind. Um, Rosemary is among those herbs and spices with basil, mint, sage, savory, Marjoram, oregano, and thyme, all rich in antioxidants. The industry is now moving toward an extract that you can rub onto the surface, apparently to reduce the HCA. In fact, when I was reading about this, I was also reading that vitamin E can dramatically reduce HCA formation in grilled or roasted meats. And I like that idea because that would add a very mild, if any, flavor at all. It depends on probably where you're getting your vitamin E from. But doing a little vitamin E in the rub, I usually have some lower dose, like 200 IU vitamin E's around. Uh, that's my preferred dose for several reasons, a lower dose. But I like to have it around. I could just kind of, you know, squirt some of those gel caps onto the meat and kind of make a, a rub there. It says, um, that may not be all. Antioxidants can have other benefits other than curtailing HCAs, Smith said. There is some indication they protect the pancreas. Um, so if you can get that from burgers, then great. So interesting uh, stuff there about blocking those. And the next one th- to set this up, this meat topic, this is uh, from this year, uh, Food Research International, it looks like, 2020, back in May. Uh, reduction of heterocyclic amines and cholesterol oxidation products in chicken uh, by controlling the flavorings and the roasting conditions. So this says... Roasting of chicken generates many toxic compounds such as heterocyclic amines and cholesterol oxidation products. The objective of this study was to evaluate uh, how they analyze the HAs and COPs, again, the heterocyclic amines and the cholesterol oxidation products, in raw, boiled, and roasted chicken, uh, and to study their formation under the influence of different flavorings. And they tried red pepper, black pepper, rosemary, and soy sauce. Um, these, it looks like these are Asian authors here, HSU, Sue and Chen. Um, anyway, a total of eight heterocyclic amines were formed in roasted chicken with a higher level of total HAs being shown in the skin portion of the roasted chicken, uh, especially when flavored with soy sauce and cooked in a fan oven. So, I mean, I have a convection oven. It browns things very quickly, so that could be uh, problematic, I guess, there. Also, for both roasting methods, the skin portion contained higher levels of these heterocyclic amines than the meat portion. So I suppose this is if you, whether or not you like to eat your chicken skin or turkey skin or whatever, uh, or if you, you take that off. Um, Taste-wise, it almost would be a shame, I think, to take it off if it's, if it's browned just right, but... Uh, It says, furthermore, in roasted chicken with four different flavorings, 
Um, all of which showed no significant correlation between the formation of HAs or COPs in the skin portion, while in the meat portion, only rosemary showed a significant beneficial correlation. So again, with the rosemary, by taking both skin and meat into account, the incorporation of rosemary flavoring into chicken during roasting was the most effective in inhibiting the formation of total HAs and these cholesterol oxidation products. So I don't know. Um, It's just, I guess, practical take home with this is, Try different rubs. I even had one. It didn't print off. Damn it. Um, but I, I had a study on beer, I guess, uh, as far as putting it in your marinade and the rubs of a you know roast or a steak or that kind of thing. And beer having some benefits. And uh, that sounds good to one, me. One thing we talk about often around my household, at least, is the difference between, uh, what would you call it? Like food from other nations, ethnic food, if you will, like Thai food. Japanese food, Chinese, like real stuff, Italian food um, versus the Americanized versions. And like the big thing is usually a huge decrease in the amount of herbs and spices. It would be interesting if there was a study like showed the difference Uh, because you go to other countries and I mean, they spice the hell out of shit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, and just herbs like crazy, you know, and like less salt um, because they don't need it. Because they have so many other spices in there, it'd be interesting to see the antioxidant. Right. Like, take an Americanized version of a food versus the original version of the food, and check out the micronutrients. I, I my guess would be the original version would be drastically higher. Yeah. So, in, in fact, I just saw a documentary that was saying that um, the prevalence of heavy spices in so many countries around the world is because they're antimicrobial. Right, the meat doesn't uh, spoil. Uh, yeah. nearly as quickly but of course then you get these other health benefits from it yes you know so, so. Uh, in fact i'll talk about this next week i'll table it for now but i have another one here on the mediterranean diet and telomere length so essentially one of the markers of aging um and of course the mediterranean diet's going to have all kinds of great stuff in it that probably some americanized version of their pasta <laughs> would not have <laughs> right so that's cool stuff Okay, uh, let's go ahead and go to break. Just one last quick announcement here. Remember, we have a Falls Fun Drive. We only pester everybody once a year for this. It can be a one-time donation at ironradio.org, or you can go to the bottom and become a patron at 4 bucks a month sort of thing. Uh, We do have some big plans we've been talking about behind the scenes as far as revamping the website and, you know, some other ways to maybe interact with the the audience. Um, I should also quickly point out the... The videos that we've been doing, Taste Test, I think we're going to table those for now and just let those simmer on YouTube a little bit and see what kind of response those get um, because there may be better ways for us to interact with everybody, but we'll see. We'll see where that one goes. But either way, there's there's some big stuff coming down the pike, so thank you anybody who uh, can donate. And With that, we will go to break, and we'll come back and talk about meat. Stop feeling. Some of us don't understand how lucky we are to be living in this. Hi, listeners. This is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. 
and we will never forget our existing supporters, simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. For this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email you'll get a once per week email no more that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio so go for it All right, folks, we're back. It's Mike and Phil and Lonnie, and we are going to talk about meat, uh, all things meat. So <laughs> let me just define this a little bit because sometimes people talk about fish in a different category. But to me, and again, uh, not from a pure food science perspective, from my perspective, if it's muscle tissue that you're eating, that's meat, right? So yes, fish, beef, chicken. In fact, those are probably the big three, at least in the States here. Obviously, pork and lamb are on that list, too, maybe especially during the holiday season. Um, Around the world, of course, there's going to be some places where a much broader variety of seafood, and that's typically a good idea, uh, fresh seafood and that kind of stuff. I know our oceans and waterways are becoming more and more polluted, but um, anyway, so yeah, mostly we're talking about beef, chicken, and fish, I think, from the like powerlifting, bodybuilding crowd, Um, not to, again, not to discuss disinclude something like pork i mean you know bacon and stuff like that but i wanted to ask phil with with this one with the amount of meat that you've probably eaten if you think back over the years like if you could look at it in a room you know yep. um what's your favorite or do you have favorite recipes oh, or uh, animals oh man that's tough um hmm. i'm a fan of like all meat is the problem uh if i had to choose like there's times that let's go the opposite route uh like things i don't eat as often okay like there's a time that like i have i just want chicken but that's not as often as like red meat and like and seafood i love seafood seafood and red meat man is where it's at with me um and seafood is varied i mean from from white fish to something more hearty like a salmon but I don't know if I had to pick a go-to, like a big fatty ribeye or something. I, oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. But, but then there's times like I don't want that, and I want something leaner, like a sirloin, something I can chew on more. <laughs> so I mean, it just depends. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, it's hard to like if I had to choose, it'd be some kind of steak or something. That would, like you have to pick one meat to eat forever, and all of them would suck in time. But if I had to choose, it'd probably be some kind of yeah. steak. 
So. Good old ruminant meat. Yeah. yeah, and it's just yeah, it's it's hearty and it sticks with you, and you just feel complete. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> Phil, do you do you? Um, I'm guessing you do, but we haven't really talked about it much. Uh, participate in a lot of the cooking with your wife. Oh yeah, I do a lot of the cooking. Yeah. So during the week, she'll do a lot more than I do because I'm, I'm busy at work and she's a stay-at-home mom. So she'll she'll do a lot more of the cooking. But come weekend time, like I cooked every bit of Thanksgiving, like every dish. Nice. With me. Wow. Um, yeah. So I love it, and she's like, "This is amazing. I get to just you know, she cleaned the house, got things <laughs> ready, and I cooked every bit of it. So I love cooking. I've always loved cooking. But uh, and we do a lot of. I've slowly upgraded my grilling process to. You know, we started with a little grill and then a little smoker, and now the smoker slash grill I built is eight feet long. Oh my god! So I can, yeah, I mean, it has one end, like it has a firebox that I can grill on, and it's probably four by three. Uh, wow. And then, so I can take the top off that and grill on that, or I close it and it turns into a smoker that I can fit probably like two whole goats in. So, wow! Yeah. Gotta, yeah. So, You're not playing games. No, a buddy of mine just wrote me this morning right before the show. He's like, you want to smoke a whole deer? I was like, yeah, let's do it. So we can like throw the whole thing on face and all and just, yeah. Is it a metal type structure or did you do like a hybrid with like concrete and stuff then? This or is, how did you uh, do it? So it's cinder blocks filled with concrete. So it's okay, yeah, yeah. Block and then expanded steel grates inside. And Nice. Yeah, man, it's it's... It's pretty awesome. You see in other countries, like in Mexico, like you go to some yeah. old school places, you find a lot of those. And well, it's they work based really on, well. I based it on, like, if you were going to cook a whole pig, like Luau style pig, they dig mm-hmm. a big hole. Right. Basically, yeah. the hole above ground. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and it's awesome. I mean, I can throw three logs on there. We tested it over Thanksgiving because I smoked our turkey. And, like, three logs, that thing stayed to temperature for nine hours. Nice. So, it takes very little. Like I can put it on and go to sleep, and it'll just nice. stay there. So right, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Hey, but. for just a quick tip for people who uh, don't have their own setup like that, um, my wife actually she learned this trick years ago, and maybe a lot of listeners know this, but I I just think it's brilliant. Is uh, she cranks the oven to five hundred, gets it up to temperature, puts um, I don't know the size. You got to look at the size of the turkey here, but we usually have a. I don't know if it's like a 17-pound. I'd have to go look. But a, a not a tiny, but not a gigantic turkey. But she puts it in at 500 and then just walks away. Um, and as the oven very slowly cools, the, the turkey comes out perfect. So by the time you eat it, I would just suggest people go look that up. Like the 500 peak oven temperature, basically you set it and forget it. You, know, you, you turn the heat off after the bird is in for an hour. And then you just walk away, and then several hours later, there's your turkey. And I mean, it was the the meat was falling off the bone this time when she did that. It was just I, there's going to be a little trial and error. And I, again, be careful, check the internal temperatures of your meat and all that, people, because I don't want to. Oh, Lowry got me sick. You know, no, no, I didn't. Go look it up. But it's a really cool trick uh, along yeah. similar lines to what Phil's talking about. Instead of putting a bunch of logs in a big um, cooking homemade cooking device, you you can just use your home oven. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I got the 21st century version of that since I live in a townhouse and them putting a big cement structure outside <laughs> is, is highly frowned upon. So I got one of the, like two months ago now, or a month and a half ago actually, I got one of the Traeger grills mm-hmm. where it's uh, wood fire and it's just, it works well. It's You have to cook a little bit differently. It's just like a massive wood convection oven that we've been playing around with uh putting it on high smoke and then leaving the steaks in for a while at a super low temperature until they hit a specific internal temperature. Oh. And I'll take them off and leave them sit for 10 minutes, and then I'll crank it to 500 and stick them back in there for a few minutes per side. And, yeah, it, it works really well. I mean, if yeah. you want something that you can just, hey, I can control the internal temperature, I can control the internal temperature and just play around with uh, different methods that way without having any of the skill of how to do any of the other stuff it works really yeah. well yeah i like the idea i know some restaurants will do that where they'll the cooking of the internal temperature of the meat and getting just the right amount of pinkness or lack thereof that is a separate process from basically higher heat browning the surface you know so yeah, that, that way you don't have to try to method. yeah combine mm-hmm. it all brown it perfectly and get it perfectly cooked they get the cooking part just right then they just kind of sear it you know 
Yeah, that was the hard part. I had a, a just an old Weber gas grill for friggin' eighteen years, and it would eventually there was no more parts to, re- <laughs> to replace on it, so we had to upgrade it. But it worked well. But that was always the hard part with that was just trying to to guess because I would usually try to brown the outside first because it was easier to get the grill super hot initially mm-hmm. and then turn it down. It was kind of hard to go the other way because it would take so long for it to cool off, but. Uh, eventually got it figured out, but even then you'd have some times where it wouldn't, wouldn't turn out quite as well because you'd forget that, oh yeah, it's a lot colder outside or it'd be windy and the back burner would go out and you didn't notice. And so Yeah, I just saw, in fact, a, a documentary yesterday, a, a Norwegian chef, uh, and he was talking about the center of Norway being more pastoral and agricultural. It's not quite as seafoody, you know, as the coastal regions, which, of course, Norway has a ton of that. But he was, he made a steak that was, uh, like a brick and it, he purposely was enjoying the fact that the outside was crisped and then it was browned and as it got closer to the bone or you know toward the center at least it mm-hmm. was more and more pink and he was just enjoying that difference like you know i think a lot of americans might be like oh it's raw in the middle it's like well I, he's he's doing that on purpose you know from sort of a high-end culinary perspective again you know usual precautions here everybody about eating undercooked meats but to me, yeah, completely overcooked steak, uh, thumbs down. <laughs> My personal choice, you know, yeah. stuff that's got no pinkness. hard part, too, is for people who are buying meat from different sources, like color inside is not always the best indicator, especially mm. if you're getting your meat from different sources. Because um, we've done that lately. We just got half a, a grass-fed cow again. And even just the comparison of that to, you know, meat we've had from other cows to what we buy in the store to different types and... It all can kind of look quite different, and, but I've been playing around with the internal temperature and been cooking them to the same internal temperature, and even then it kind of looks a little bit different. So that's not always the best indicator either, but Truly. it gives you in a ballpark. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why they're always on about the you know the thermometers. and. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, I just saw a thing from IFT. That they cooked meat under different pressures and how radically different it made the color. Mike, I thought you might give a little rundown of what's good about meat. You know, why are we on about this so much? Think about like from a bodybuilding or a powerlifting or strength perspective. What might our listeners be interested in? What do meats have to offer that you might not see in other foods? Yeah, so big things I look for uh, dietary recall is if someone is very low on all meat in my head, I'm thinking eh, potentially B12. Uh, I may follow up and see, do you have any joint pain, especially Achilles heel pain? There's a couple of case reports of stuff like that in the literature. Um, and especially iron and in female lifters, because a lot of times they can be very low in iron. Uh, men tend to run the other way. They can potentially be a little bit too high in iron, uh, especially if it's a guy and I'm like, hey, when's the last time you talked to your physician about getting a blood test? They're like, mm, I don't know, like never. Like, yeah, you should probably do that because you could be sky high in iron and, and not necessarily really know it. Yeah. Um, you can ask if their family members have ever had to donate blood because of too high of iron, right, to see if they have potential genetic issues. Yeah. Um, so iron's usually a big one. I usually find that women paradoxically eat less meat, so that puts them at a little bit more of a risk because trying to get a lot of iron from plant sources is really hard. You get into different types of iron. There's a heme iron versus a non-heme iron. So heme iron is a form that's going to be easily processed and it's going to be found in meat. And then even an article you wrote a long time ago, Lonnie, had a T-Meg about the, the zoo chemicals in it from uh, carnosine. Some lifters are probably familiar with carnosine as a intramuscular buffer of, usually it's called lactic acid, but lactic acid disassociates into lactate which is burned as a fuel, actually, and then the hydrogen ions. So it's actually the sports supplement beta-alanine came from the original looking at carnosine. So carnosine is composed of L-histanine and beta-alanine. The body has plenty of L-histanine floating around. So if we supplement with beta-alanine, we're actually trying to increase intramuscular carnosine. Yep. So first guy I ever heard talk about beta-alanine supplement was our, our friend Dave Barr. Um, so carnosine, if you get enough of it in, which, you know, you'd have to eat a lot, a lot of meat, but uh, that can help with uh, buffering some higher intensity work. Uh, obviously, creatine, people have heard of that, too. Again, you would need to eat just a massive 
pounds of of meat to get you know five grams of creatine but it's definitely involved um in meat and may result for some of the differences you see between you know lifters who are not supplementing especially older studies uh using um meat versus not meat so compared to like a vegan population uh, vegans can be pretty low in creatine if they're not using it as a supplement there's probably other compounds in there that we haven't really identified if you get into uh, red color in seafood there's something called astaxanthine which is a very interesting antioxidant it's uh, both water and fat soluble there's some really early data years ago in mice going through a water maze in japan that showed that astaxanthine as a supplement, they make it from a red seaweed now, was super beneficial for endurance capacity. So probably like 10 years ago, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And at the time, there wasn't many uh, human uh, subjects studies on performance. Uh, there was studies showing that it was safe. Um, unfortunately, the human performance studies, uh, Van Loon's done one, a couple of people have done one. It just hasn't really panned out all that well. But Maybe a good antioxidant, uh, maybe good for uh, sun protection, possibly. So I'll take higher doses I've talked about if I'm going to be outside in the, the sun a fair amount. So there's probably a whole bunch of other chemicals we haven't even identified yet because it's just not a, a super big active area of research. Right, yeah. In fact, my I used to get these krill supplements, but you yeah. and I talked about it. But they're so low. They have a little bit of astaxanthin in it, but it's it's such a minuscule amount. That I'm just like, I don't know, whatever. Like, if I wanted to get serious about that, I might look for it directly. Or, yeah, just like you said, just I, I get it that we'd have to eat copious amounts of meat, right, in order to get some of these things like creatine or some of these zoochemicals. But, you know, at the same time, it's fun to eat lots of meat. They're complete proteins. We can't forget that either. You know, they're high-quality yeah. stuff. They're really going to support muscle growth. Uh, plant proteins, for all the rage I keep hearing in all of these – you know, food industry publications that I get, um, plant proteins just don't cut it. I mean, by and large, unless you're eating more and you're combining them widely. Now, when you eat as much as an off-season bodybuilder or powerlifter, that's probably going to happen, to be fair, right? But I still want some complete uh, proteins involved. And I mean, are they as high as dairy proteins like whey or casein as far as some of these different uh, quality scales? Maybe not quite as high, but they're really good. They're complete proteins. Like Phil said, they're filling because they're solid, so the gastric emptying isn't immediate. Um, I, I know that uh, I would go through phases where I would eat huge amounts, especially when dieting, of uh, round steak, like bottom round or eye of round and chicken. Um, half my plate, almost every meal, you know, the other half would be stuff like asparagus or broccoli or cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, the usual fibery veg. Uh, when you diet. And then I can control exactly the amount of carbohydrates I get. You know, I might start with two potatoes and go one and a half potatoes for a couple of weeks and then go one potato. You can kind of grade down the carb intake. But the ever-present thing was either round steak or one to two chicken breasts on my plate, you know, because you, round steaks are reasonably low fat. They can be a little less quality from a, like, dripping, juicy, awesomeness perspective. But they can be pretty well-made, you know, when you pan sear them. Um, so I just wanted to talk very quickly about risks. And usually the risks you hear about red meat, and we've talked about this repeatedly. Mike and I will sometimes uh, politely, I guess, or sometimes, Mike, more <laughs> politely, interrogate, like, somebody presenting at a conference because they, they throw all red meat into one big lump. And, you know, nitrite-preserved meats like hot dogs and bologna. Now, it's very controversial. There's a long history controversy about uh, the cons of these things and different types of cancers or, or problems with the nervous system, uh, some of these preservatives. Other aspects, though, there are actually potentially some benefits of <laughs> like nitrite, nitrate types of things. So it's a very sticky issue I don't want to get into here. But suffice it to say, I think I don't like it when researchers say red meat and you say, what do you mean? And, you know, to them, grass-fed round steak is no different from hot dogs. And it's like, come on. Guys, you know, I, I get it for a certain research purpose. You need to operationally define what you mean by red meat, but that's not fair. You know, you say, oh, look at all the, all the, I don't know, colon cancer or whatever from the red meat group. It's like, yeah, but look at their dietary patterns. 
you know, if your pattern is hot dogs, it's probably also Cheetos and <laughs> the kind of, you know, picnic foods that might go with that or or uh, processed foods as opposed to, again, like a grass-fed, uh, you know, steak of some kind uh, with different fatty acid composition and everything. And then we already talked about the HCA. That's the other thing, too. If you love grilling uh, or browning your meat, like, you know, um, sort of uh, roasting it to a nice crispness or something like that or even pan searing like i probably do the most yeah it might be a good idea to do something like if you like it to get like slightly you know very browned and kind of crisped and i I would guess a lot of people probably do it might be good to include uh additional herbs or like i said i'm gonna actually experiment with vitamin e a little bit and let people know what it does to the the flavor and whatnot and then lastly as far as like real high protein diets we've done whole episodes on that i'm not even going to go there um, if you think that you're going to get so much protein and creatine, for example, from eating lots of meat that it's going to hurt your kidneys, you really need to talk to somebody who is up on the literature um, because that's highly unlikely. So, um, Phil, I actually wanted to ask you about like how you how you cook your meat most commonly. I mean, do you roast oh. it? Do you do you grill constantly? Are you do you do pan searing? Like, what do you do? We do it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it just varies, honestly, from week to week just to change it up. So there'll be a lot of times we do the whole low and slow thing um, where, you know, like I did a whole goat and it took 27 hours. Whoa. Um, and we were really low and slow and 200 degrees and, and let it go. And then other times I'll fire the grill up and just go as hot as we can and get it done in five minutes. Yeah. So, um, you know, during the week it's definitely more of a, Hey, let's get this done. We're busy. So, and then come weekend time, it might be a, a faster thing. Like this year, I actually did the turkey on. So normally I'd smoke it and go a long time, but I cranked that thing up to like 450 degrees and it was done in three and a half hours uh, mm. in, in my, you know, pit. So, okay. Uh, it, it depends. I mean, there's, there's definitely, it, it varies from time to time and what there's a, there's a time and place for it all because uh, the flavor is so varied in how you do that. So, uh, like right. Mike said, you know, you sear versus a reverse sear versus, and yeah, I mean, we don't like getting bored. You can change it up for the same cut of meat and get drastically different results and flavors. Flavors, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's true. It's in a way, it's like brewing coffee. You know, different temperatures bring out different chemicals, you know, in the yep. process. We should get a, a hardcore food chemist on here sometime. Yeah. There's even, let's not forget, like moist cookery methods, you know, where you're, you've got something you're constantly. Uh, basting it and you know it's cooking in its own juices that's going to produce something different from some of these other things one one tip i'll give everybody too is i've made this mistake many times but if you've got something in the oven and you want to quickly uh brown it like you turn on the broiler like you it's cooked and you're ready just to kind of crisp up everything um i my tip would be try if you start doing that to kind of get that last little blast of heat and the crispness on the surface of something i use the low setting on the broiler because if you're like, no, no, hi, I want it done now, you're going to get – oftentimes you'll get like black spots here and there, and you're not going to get as quite even of that, you know, that browning, that Maillard reaction and the kind of crispy browning stuff. So I would, I would say get used to – if you're going to finish something like that, I like the low setting on the broiler in the oven. I don't want to make this a, just a cooking show necessarily, but uh, Mike, what about you? Because you – I imagine you try all kinds of things too in the, in the kitchen. Yeah, so one thing I've been trying, I'll try again now, is kind uh, of combine, like, things I really like together. So I've been playing around with uh, a coffee rub on steak. Oh! <laughs> um, and I, so my next thing to add to it now is a little bit of cayenne pepper, because it's, it was okay, but it was, yeah, not quite as good as I thought. So uh, playing around with different things like that, just for fun. And kind of what Phil said, I think having different methods of cooking is going to be good because if i have a really thick steak and you know like last weekend we did this we even did this for thanksgiving you know if i'm gonna put it on low and have it sit there for a while and put it on high smoke and then take it off and reverse sear it and go through all that work it's it can be up to an hour sometimes depending on how thick the meat is and what temperature i have it at Um, there's other times where you're just hungry and you just need to get it cooked yeah and then also with with travel when we were down in south padre texas the place we were staying at before always had grills, but uh, they didn't have any this time. Uh, so luckily I went to the 
Dollar General store and found a, a cheap uh, cast iron pan um, where you can order pretty good ones off of Amazon for not too much. We've used like a lodge pan, cast iron pan before. And for steak, that works pretty good. Another tip is uh, put the steak uh, room temperature just a little bit or have it sit on the counter for a little while. Make sure the outside is really dry. There's not much moisture on it. And then put the pan in the oven at like 500 degrees. Uh, you may need to take it out with like two hot pads because it will go through one hot pad if you have cheap hot pads, as I found out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then sear it first um, because you can get the pan super hot for like a minute or so on each side. Just move it around the pan until it moves freely, and then you can bake it in the oven in the same pan at you know whatever temperature, depending on the, the, the thickness. Um, so we did that a fair amount when we were down there, and that actually worked pretty darn good. Um, so I think having different methods, depending upon where you're at, or maybe you've got just a old-school grill like Phil's place, or you've got one that's only on charcoal or propane. So I think an underestimated thing is expanding your cooking skills to adapt to what you have there going on. That's a really great point, Mike. I mean, mm -hmm. people talk about um, fitness skills. You know, we were talking the other week about, yeah. Jim, you got to get that blood pressure down or your gut down. And Jim doesn't know what to do. He's intimidated when he walks into a gym. It's the same thing with the kitchen. Kitchen skills are a huge barrier to people being able to, mm. you know, have the diet that is going to lead to better physique or better strength, yeah. you know. Uh, so they just buy stuff. You know, you go buy a – now, there's something to be said about the delicious braised um, rotisserie chickens from like a Sam's Club or somewhere like that. They're delicious. They're fattier. Like if I don't know if I'd be dieting eating that all the time. But, yeah, kitchen skills are a big deal, you know. Yeah, and gone. You know, yes. Largely, there are, there's like yeah. a population of people now that like if you give them a box of macaroni and cheese, they don't know how to make it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking even cooking. Right. Like making – food. Prepare it. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. So, no, yeah. Um, to your point, Phil, when I, um, all those years I taught in dietetics programs, one of the big bitch sessions a lot of the professors would be that the, the students were even leaving the program with grossly insufficient culinary skills as far as like how many tablespoons in a quarter cup or things like that. You know, and I know when you cook things commercial grade, you tend to do things by weight, not volume, like a regular kitchen. But yeah, they don't even have a lot of functioning knowledge about measurements and and things like that. And again, yeah, it's it's sort of a sign of the times, I think, compared to Mike talking about old school, you know, cast iron pan, how versatile it is. You know, you can do your frying or searing on the stovetop, and then you can stick the whole thing in the freaking oven too, because it doesn't have a plastic handle. You know, <laughs> like there's a lot of just yeah, skill involved in a lot of this stuff. Not that I'm, I think I'm that skilled really. Um, but like you guys, spousally, we share a lot of the cooking kinds of stuff. Kelly does most, but I'll do like breakfasts on the weekends and, and my son's, you know, really good at it. And he, he tends to really like stuff like herbs and fresh foods. And, you know, he, he'll go slum it at a Taco Bell at 2am. Don't get me wrong. But at the same <laughs> time, he knows what he's doing. You know, he like, he knows that that's not, um, you know, a, a chronic thing. So another tip too is just get better with marinades if you have time, especially with meats that are generally a little bit lower quality. Um, if you travel a lot, you may not have access to the freshest and most amazing meat ever, or you don't want to pay an ungodly amount of price for it. So you can buy what are typically lower quality meats that tend to be a little bit tougher and. If you get good with marinades, you can just throw that in there for a period of time and learn how to cook them, and it turns out pretty good and saves you a lot of money, too. Yeah. I, I first started that. Like, my training wheels marinades, I would just glug a bunch of Italian <laughs> dressing into a freezer bag with my chicken <laughs> breast. You know, yeah. Just desperate, maybe a squirt 11, just desperate to um, flavor my 99th chicken breast of the week, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah. well, that's, I mean, again, if you go to ethnic food, that's, I mean, those people, yeah, they can make a butthole taste good <laughs> with spices. You know, I mean, they eat every part. Like, oh, here's the feet. What do we do? Right. Yeah. You know, and that's eat why. It all. I mean, they've used everything. Yeah. They didn't just use the delicious cuts. Right. You know? Oh, no doubt. No yeah, doubt. We need to eat this face. You know, yeah. what do we do to make it taste good? Yeah. I, so. I remember that being in the 
Dominican Republic for a while. We were down there kiteboarding, and this local guy was super cool. He's like, oh, yeah, come on over. We'll grill out on the beach. And he just had a bunch of you know local people. that was a friend of ours we knew there, and I think we paid him like $3 each. And I don't even know what the heck I was eating. We're like, what part of the animal is this? They're like, yeah. I don't know. What animal is it? I don't know, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and you guys, I think, like, I, the reason that I'm omnivorous like I am, and, it, you know, let's face it, if someone is a vegan, um, for ethical reasons, I can I can understand and empathize w- where they're coming from. I really can. But I think when it comes to – sometimes you get people that are so zealous that they'll say, you know, humans weren't meant to eat it. And I don't want to go a whole episode about, you know, vegetarians. Once I wrote an article about vegetarianism and how you have to plan it carefully, and T.C. Luoma called it Die Vegan Die or something like that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now you've just inflamed people on purpose, you know, yeah. you jerk. Yeah. But but the point being is it's just food chain, right? Animals graze on low-quality grasses or something aquatic uh, all day long. And then they do the work. They accumulate an enormous amount of nutrients. I mean, if you just look at a lot of the vitamins that are in meats, they're a very rich source of vitamins. And if you look in some of the nutrition textbooks, they'll say, well, they're not as nutrient-dense as, say, broccoli. It's like, but that's per calorie, and broccoli has no calories. That's not a fair comparison. Look at total total dose. Even per pound. I mean, I can sit down and chow down a pound of steak. It's big, but it's not that big. A pound of freaking broccoli? Whew. Holy crap. Oh, that's right. huge. Absolutely. You know? <sighs> yeah. So. I think about that when I see these like um, heroic eating contests and stuff. And honestly, this I rather see someone – I personally rather tackle some giant burger than the bucket of fries that I have to eat with it. Yeah. You know, something like yeah. that. But yeah, I mean f- as far as gross – total dose of a lot of vitamins and nutrients it's it's just food chain it's really hard to argue right the animals graze on all this stuff all these low quality grasses and whatnot they accumulate the nutrients in their flesh and then you eat their muscles essentially mm-hmm. you know so yeah and you can work your way around any sort of restrictions i mean obviously i've had clients i'm sure you guys have too who you know i've worked with clients who were vegan for mm-hmm. you know ethical reasons religious reasons which yep. is totally fine and yeah, even myself for Man, probably 25 years of my life, I I didn't eat any red meat. That's right. For whatever yeah. reason, it just because we would have steak at Christmas. And my parents are like, "Doesn't this look good?" And I'm like, "No, nothing about <laughs> nothing about it at that time for who knows whatever reason was just not appealing." Like my parents weren't vegetarians. Like no one really in our family was. Um, and then later, probably like my mid 30s, I was like, "Huh, this metabolic flexibility thing." Well. I should probably just get to the point, especially with travel and stuff, that I can eat steak and know that it'll be okay, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you haven't eaten it for, like, decades, you could have some digestion issues with it if you just had a whole bunch of it. Um, And at that point, I got to the point where I could eat it, and I was like, oh, this isn't too bad. And, you know, within a couple of years, I'm like, ooh, let's order a grass-fed cow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, that's good. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think we're going to offend any of our listeners. I mean, we've got listeners complaining when we don't say dem nuts. <laughs> so, I don't, don't – <laughs> nobody's going to be complaining too much. And like I said, it's not like we're total a-holes about uh, veganism and whatnot. It just it requires a lot of planning. And, you know, you're never going to convince me um, just based on the evidence that people were made not to eat meat or that meat's not incredibly nutrient-rich you know, and delicious, you know, and that, and satisfying. And it's got the, you know, protein that elevates your metabolism and everything else. So there's just a lot of good things for it. Uh, At the same time, plants aren't bad either. Cause now we've oh. seen people that are like eat meat yes. only. And I'm like, yeah, maybe if you have digestive issues, you've got yeah. something you're trying to sort out and you need to do a hardcore elimination diet. Yeah. For some pathologies, I get it, but Oh, agreed. That that's the state that a healthy human beings should be, and now we should be afraid of like friggin' vegetables. I'm like, oh come on. No, agreed. <laughs> I love some fruits and vegetables too. Eat it all. Yeah, all absolutely. And you know, even from a taste and culinary perspective, I want a little bit of fresh green veg or colorful veg yep. every few oh, bites yeah. of meat. Otherwise, yep. it just gets a little tiresome. You know. Yep. So. All right. 
All right. Well, we are out of time. So thanks, everybody. Um, remember, please consider the fall donation. We got a mid-show ad. We got some big plans coming up. Um, we're just talking behind the scenes with Phil and Mike about this. Uh, and support the show. And we'll see you thanks next time. Thanks a lot, time. guys. See you. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.